busted a fuse and I was so mad. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Because like, I was like, I've been feeling not stable the past two days. <laughs> and then I was like trying to get everything done, you know, and I'm like getting ready to watch Aladdin <laughs> and I'm like trying to get dinner ready. And then I like turn the light on and the light bulb just like bursts. And I was like, oh, shit, it's just the light bulb. And I was like, nope, it is the, the entire whole first fuse. floor. The whole <laughs> fuse. Find the fuse box, flick them on and off. And then I always oh, play in my head that scene in Jurassic Park where, like, Dr. Ellie is, like, turning it all on. And then yeah. she's trapped with the raptors and she's uh-huh. got the hurt foot. It's a mm-hmm. whole thing. It is a whole um, thing. But we're not here to talk about Jurassic Park. Not yet. Um, no. Um, we're here to talk about her story. On the road. With Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we're definitely not historians. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, but we are drinkers. We're mm-hmm. great drinkers. We are amateur cocktail makers. But I would say like pro-am. Oh, pro. We're definitely in the pro-am situation right, now. Right, right. Like, I think that we are coming up with some pretty decent things now. Especially since we've used literally every drink combination. So now we have to be wild. I'm so worried about doubling up. Like, because I'm doing a Disney princess, I was like really conscious of like, I don't, because it's going to be the same color as the aerial cocktail Mm -hmm. we did back in like Mm -hmm. season one. And I was like, I don't want it to be the exact same thing. Right. And so. I feel like the Cinderella cocktail was blue as well. Yes. yes. So it's God. like, yeah, it's What's wrong with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, because all they're like, I don't know. They're blue. It's fine. Yeah. Everything will be fine. It's great. Um, <laughs> you're busy making sure that you aren't doubling up on your date book for the upcoming Memorial day oh. weekend. Let me tell you. The schedules are getting crazy. Yo. I just, it's outrageous. There's so, nothing you can do this time of year to make it to everybody's thing. No, you can't. So you're on your phone, but you have the Google Keep, the Google app, the, you have your calendar, you have everything, and you're just trying to figure out what you're doing. So you can't take away from all that and Google what these women look like. That would be yeah. madness. Mm-hmm. So we're going to describe them for you so you can still have a picture in your head while we're telling their story. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So I am doing I for Ida B. Wells. (laughs) And Ida was an African-American woman who wore her hair in a bun on like the top Mm -hmm. crown of her head. In most of her portraits, she's wearing a former formal high collar dress with like wistfully looking off to the side she was very stoic and very like victorian although she only stood at four and a half feet tall she was definitely four and a half feet tall four and a half feet tall she is like a little short person what She's very short. Wow. I would not have expected that. I thought she seems much taller. And also because in like all her pictures, she's like drawn with her like arm aloft. Like, yeah, (laughs) you know, like at the end of Mighty Ducks. So that's interesting. She's very short. Um, But I think she's got this very lovely, silky, smooth skin and a very symmetrical face. Mm -hmm. And then something that's neat about her is you can always see her ears. I feel like I haven't looked at a lot of ears of these famous women, but because her hair was always so up on the crown of her head, she has very cute ears. You know, it's funny is someone pointed out recently that Cinderella does not have ears. You never see her ears. Weird. Isn't that strange? Yeah. And I was like looking at pictures and I was like, that is true. I even see Barbie's ears. (laughs) Never see them. That's like covered up by the headband or just her Mm. hair, like, or a, a handkerchief. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah, I thought that was very funny. Huh. So who are you doing for J? And what does she look like? Okay, so I am doing a Jasmine. Jasmine in her Disney form is a 15 to 16-year-old Middle Eastern girl with long flowing black hair that's kind of, you know, in like a low pony, but it's separated by two hair ties as it cascades down her back. She has a blue headband with a gem in it that accentuates how her hair at the front of her face kind of like balloons out and frames her whole head and face perfectly. She wears a gold necklace, gold earrings, gold shoes, and an iconic bandeau top, uh, type top with puffy pants with her midriff showing. And it is all a gorgeous, teal, iconic, bluish-green color. What a hot outfit. A hot outfit. Hot, hot, hot. Uh, <laughs> she has big eyes and an adorable smile and a chin that comes to a very fine point. Um, and that's what she looks like. She is, I mean, she's always at the top of the list of, like, hottest Disney princesses, most beautiful, you know, like, she's, she's gorgeous. just gorgeous. And we'll get into who inspired her look in the story. Oh, I already know. <laughs> But I want to tell you. Oh, because I know you probably have seen the I've Disney seen the documentary. It's so great. <laughs> it is so oh, great. It's perfect. Um, but I'm not going to spoil any of that. Okay. <laughs> so, um, do you want to know what you're drinking? Yes, it looks so interesting and different. <laughs> this is called Princess Iola. Ooh. And it is a red wine float. Mm. And we have never done this. So it is a scoop. For me, I did cherry ice cream because mm-hmm. this cocktail has a maraschino cherry in it. Mm-hmm. But you can do vanilla ice cream and just add cherry. It's funny. I thought it was strawberry. Mm-hmm. But I like that it's cherry. It is. It's cherry ice cream. And then I put maraschino cherries in it. And then I filled the glass about halfway up with red wine and then did club soda. And if you want the bubbles to go down, then put a little bit more like mm-hmm. red wine on top of that to okay. kind of help you out. Well, cheers. So cheers. This is going to be really hard to drink. <laughs> mm. That is delightful. Yeah. I really like it. I like it too. I don't know how to describe the taste because it doesn't really taste like red wine or club soda or ice cream. <laughs> no. Yeah, I don't know how to describe this. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I threw mint leaves in there, so that's why you're going to get those. <laughs> but that was just for, for me because they're in the kitchen, like, ready to go. I was like, hey, as It well. was funny, too, because I was like, what is that? When I was, like, taking the picture because it was, like, kind of buried in there. <laughs> but I really like it. I mean, I love any float. I love any kind of mixture of ice cream and something bubbly because it just makes it so creamy. And I think, though, too, that, like, usually ice cream cocktails are paired with something, like, chocolatey. And this yeah. is very different from that. It's more like a sorbet. Yeah, it kind of give, It's giving that feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love it. Wow. I'm glad. Why don't you tell <laughs> me what you know about Ida B. Wells? I feel terrible that I really don't know much. I feel like she worked in the newspaper industry. Yes. And that is it. Katie, that's how I feel. <laughs> yeah, I was like, she, I, her name is up all the time. Like, whenever you like famous women, it's, she's always up there. And I just have never. She's amazing. I I've, can't wait. I've never looked into her. And, like, I knew when I was going to Chicago, I knew her name would be on a lot of stuff. Because she did spend a lot of her later years in Chicago. Okay. Um, but then when we're in Chicago and producers asking about her, 
I was like, um, she was like a journalist and a teacher. And I was like, I feel so uneducated right now. Yeah. So I, I type anytime I have that, I text myself like w- women's names yeah. and I was like, okay, she's got to be yeah. on our docket. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's a thousand sources <laughs> for Ida B. Wells. So the history chicks did a great episode on her. I would say this, they didn't go as in depth as they usually do. It was like a quick and breezy. Interesting. I feel like sometimes, um, I don't know if she has anything kind of risque or like scandalous, but sometimes I feel like they don't like to talk about that stuff. So they'll gloss over it. Yes, they do. Okay. And she does. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And I, there's a Ted Ed that I watched. There's a PBS documentary. There's like an All American Stories documentary. Obviously, Wikipedia. There's a Crash Course History. I read sections of the pamphlets that she wrote and sections of her autobiography. Mm. So there is so much going on. Very so exciting. buckle up, folks. <laughs> So Ida Bell Wells. Bell, that's such a great middle name. Ida Bell Wells was born on a farm in Mississippi in July of 1862. And yes, that means she was born into slavery. She was the oldest child in a family of eight children, barring one of the children that died in infancy. Her dad was James Madison Wells, and her mom was Lizzie Warrington, I think. Okay. <laughs> Ida's, Ida's grandfather was a white man who impregnated his enslaved woman, Peggy, so her father is biracial. Her dad was the only child of that slave owner, though, so hmm. he didn't have any like other white children. Okay. So he was a very, very fond of his son and he was favored and treated with some dignity but still an enslaved person right right it's not like he like freed him or his mother right it's like a sally hemming situation where you're like a step above the other slaves but you're still a slave yeah um her grandfather actually sent her father at the age of 18 to become a carpenter's apprentice because he wanted him to learn some skills Mm -hmm. and because of this her father was able to work for hire like around the town because everybody needed things fixed Mm -hmm. in this mississippi town and they're like so far north in mississippi it's like a stone's throw into tennessee Mm. um but her mother had a very different slave experience, like the exact opposite. Her mm. mother was one of 10 children who was born on a plantation in Virginia, and she was sold away from her family and siblings extremely young, at like oh. five or six years old. Post-Civil War, she did go back and try to find her family, but her mom never did. Oh. She had multiple slave owners through her life, one, at least one of which that was extremely violent that she used to tell her children about. Um, but she ended up also having an extremely important skill. She was an accomplished cook so much so that like she could be sold for more money. Oh, interesting. So both of her parents end up enslaved by this like architect carpenter guy that James is working under as an apprentice. The place is now called Bowling Gate House, which is also now an Ida B. Wells museum. Oh. So her parents' old slave owners now house a museum to her, which I think is super cool. That's really neat. Yeah. Hmm. And it's where she was born. So, like, that's the house she was born in. Right. And they, like, acknowledge that this is the slave owners' home. Yes, absolutely. Good. Um, 
So her parents fell in love there, which is great because their union was a love union. It wasn't like they were torn away from other people that they were with. This is the first, you know, person that they were with. And it's, they're happily in love and joining together in this, you know, shitty slavery situation. Then Ida is born, and at two months old, President Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation, oh. and nothing happens in the South, because oh, right. the Emancipation Proclamation is the middle of the Civil War, and he signed it only to free the slaves in the South. So the slaves in the North are still enslaved, and the slaves in the South, everybody's like, okay, oh sure, sounds good. We're just going to go with this new president right. and secede from the Union. But, you know, war goes on, blah, 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 blah. During the end of the war and immediately following, a lot of slave families don't know what to do. They're kind of going back and forth because they're like, I'm living in this place. Slaves that were not with violent slaves, slave owners were like, it's free. It's safe. I'm not going to have some vigilantes out there hunting my family down to right. kill me. Yeah. So a lot of people just stayed. And that's what James and, James and Lizzie decided to do. They were like, we have two young children at this point. We have a respectable like home. We're well-liked in the community because I'm a great cook and mm-hmm. he's a carpenter. And like we're just going to hang out for a bit. So the war's over. And then the Civil Rights Act gives men of color the right to own property. And then the 14th Amendment makes black Americans citizens and men over 21 can vote state by state, black men. Mm -hmm. Because right after the Civil War, Reconstruction was like really positive. Yeah. We didn't have Jim Crow laws yet. We didn't have separate but equal. We didn't have segregation. Everybody had all this hope of like, yes. It's right. going to work. And then white people started figuring out ways to push people back down. Right. So right now it's like positive. Like, oh, yeah, black men can vote. Oh, yeah, you can own property. Oh, you're a citizen. And then we start changing the laws to uh, get rid of all those amazing things that were happening right after the war. So James's previous owner that he's now kind of working for wants all of the people, former slaves who are working for him to – vote democratic whereas lincoln was republican and he's like putting pressure on them and james like i'm not doing that Mm -hmm. so he goes on election day and you know because the ballots used to be different colors so you would know who's voting for who so james votes republican Mm -hmm. not democratic and by the time he gets home he's locked out of his (gasps) workshop oh my god so he tells his family okay we're gonna get up we're gonna go Now, remember, James has been working for hire for a while and has, like, a white dad, so he's a little bit more privileged than other people. Right. So he gets his stuff. He goes into town. He rents tools. He rents a house. And he comes back and opens a carpentry workshop across the street (gasps) from his owner. (laughs) And he's been doing the work for all these people for all these years. Right. So they're going to go to him when they need something fixed. Oh, my God. I love that. Think about all the pride he instilled in his daughter from like looking in the face of somebody and be like, yeah, no, I can't even imagine. No, that's incredible. It's so out of the norm of how they were supposed to be feeling. Right. You know, cause there, I feel like they, there was so much fear being instilled into enslaved people. Oh yeah. Of like you're not worth anything. So to have him have so much self-worth, and self-respect to be able to do that is amazing. And what a great lesson for his kids. Yeah. That's incredible. Unbelievable. That wasn't supposed to be the situation. Exactly. 
And what's even more interesting is because Lizzie worked in the kitchen and like in the dining room, this is the late 1800s. Lizzie, her mom, is super Victorian. So mm. she wants her kids to dress Victorian yeah. and act Victorian and be proper and mm -hmm. sit a certain way. And we don't often think about African-American Southerners being Victorian Southern no, belles. We don't. And mm -hmm. it, it's just how Ida grew up. Yeah. So... In a cool chain of events, after the Civil War, her father, James, becomes a trustee at Shoal University, which is now Rust College, a historically black university, which cheers to all the historically black universities who've been operating for the last 200 years to give people education that nobody else would. Yeah. I live right next to one. Right. Morgan, Morgan State. Gorgeous campus. Amazing. It's, it's so cool. Housed my lost dog for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Running around Morgan State. She's like, I just want to be a bear. <laughs> um, so her dad, in being on this board of this college, became known as something of a race man and greatly supported the efforts of newly freed slaves. Ida and all of his children had to enroll in school, Shaw College. Now, they say college or university, but it was like an all-aged learning okay. institution. Okay. It had previously been illegal for slaves to learn to read, so often the moms and dads of the kids going to this historically black university would go to school as well if they had time and money. Mm -hmm. So Lizzie, her mom, went to school all day with her kids and then would come home and be a mom. Mm -hmm. And Lizzie actually got the perfect attendance award. Oh! <laughs> so again, look at what she's learning from her mom. Like, I didn't know how to read, and I'm going to go to school with you. God. That's uh, amazing. Her parents are just teaching her, like, all about the greatest things. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I hear perfect attendance, I always think of Heather Gartside because she had perfect attendance from – she went to open Bible from kindergarten to 12th grade. She never missed a day of school. Um, I, that's how Carrie was. Carrie Barry. Really? She never missed school. Never missed. Never. Also, post-COVID, please miss school when you're sick. Oh, please. please dear please. God. <laughs> Let's not idealize this. No. But, <laughs> but that's post-COVID world. Um, so she, Ida ends up going to school until she's about 16. When Ida was 16, she went to visit her grandmother, Peggy. And while she was gone, tragedy struck her family. Ida lost... Both of her parents <gasps> and one sibling to yellow fever. No. Mm, speaking of quarantine. Oh. Um, now, her dad had also been a Mason because I guess his dad was a Mason. So mm -hmm. you get like the automatic in. Mm -hmm. um, and Masons take care of each other. So by the time Ida gets back, all the Masons are like, no worries. This family's going to take this kid. This family's going to take this kid. This family. And she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hell yeah. no. You can't split up my siblings. Like my mom was sold as a slave and taken away from her siblings. And, like, I know you're trying to do good here, but yeah. I need to keep this family together for her. So Ida asked the Masons, here's what you can do for me. I need you to help me get a job as a teacher. And they go, okay. They help her get a job as a teacher, and they let her have all her siblings. Now let's keep in mind, oh she is God. 16 years old. <gasps> and she is now in charge of five siblings, one that oh cannot walk and um, has only her grandmother to kind of help out on weekdays. So they get her a job. She's making $25 a month. She goes and lives at the school for the week and then takes care of her siblings on the weekends. She's working full time. She's raising a family. She's also going to school to finish herself right. during this time. And she is like burning the candle at both ends. And here's where we see the first of Ida's short, short temper. She 
has a fiery, wrathful attitude. <laughs> and in the midst of burning the candle at both ends, she said the wrong thing to the wrong person at school. Maybe she got sassy. Maybe she yelled at them. Whatever. She spoke her mind, and she gets expelled <gasps> from school. She's oh, still no. a teacher, but she gets expelled. And she does say in her autobiography that she regretted the opportunity that she, like, never got a degree because she couldn't keep her mouth shut. But she also gets famous for not keeping her mouth shut. So it's like, (laughs) well, you win some, you lose some, Ida. Uh, About two years later, her grandmother dies. And um, then her sister, who couldn't walk, who was paralyzed, uh, also died. So Wells and her two younger brothers moved down to Memphis, where her aunt lived, so her younger brothers can stay with they're up to memphis they're in mississippi they're up to memphis um and her two little brothers can stay with the aunt and she's gonna go to memphis she gets hired by the shelby county school system and she is a teacher at school of schools of color she held really really strong political opinions and would provoke anybody Uh. who talked to her about (laughs) women's rights and civil rights all the time um and her temper was good in that regard she always said what she was thinking in memphis she had to ride the train every day to work and the way the trains were set up then is there's an engine in the front and then there's passenger cars that follow it one of the passenger cars is called the smoker car that's like the lower class car Mm -hmm. lower class people usually also people of color Mm -hmm. they're cursing they're gambling they're drinking and she's a proper victorian lady right she's not gonna sit in the smoker car no. so she always paid extra to sit in the lady car which is the first class car it was quiet it was lovely it was relaxing she could read and just sit but on one such occasion the conductor told her i cannot accept your ticket she's like well i paid for it <laughs> she paid fuck? extra for it um she ignored him She was just like, okay, if I sit here quietly and keep reading, maybe he'll go away and, like, do nothing about it. So he picked up all her belongings and started heading for the smoker car. He asked her to move. She refused, and he asked three other train workers to come and help him. They ripped her from her seat, (gasps) tore her dress, and threw her off of the train onto the train platform altogether. Oh, my God. And to make it worse, the white passengers were applauding (gasps) all the while. Oh, terrible. What the fuck? I know. She's like the original Rosa Parks. I know. This case is actually. Slash Claudette Claudette Colvin. (laughs) This case is cited in the Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court case. Her case where she wouldn't get off of the train. Oh, my God. It's so irritating because it's like she's like, I do this all the time. Mm -hmm. It's not even like she was like going out to make a political statement. She was like, no, this is just my daily commute or whatever. And she's she's doing nothing but existing. She's wearing a Victorian dress. She's being quiet. She's keeping to herself. She's not causing a ruckus. Not that you should ever be thrown off of the train for your race, for however you're acting. Right. But like this is, it's a crazy situation. So... Um, she does decide to sue the railroad and she won the first case. Really? Because again, this is before separate but equal. So it's like, no, you can't do that. She paid for the ticket. Of course, the railroad appeals and they would delay, 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 delay the case because they're scared of her because she is an outspoken, well-dressed, educated African-American woman. There are 20 black school teachers in Memphis and she's one of them and they are not trying to come up against her. 
a local newspaper even ran a sarcastic story that says, what does it cost to put a Negro woman in the smoking car? Apparently $500 <laughs> because that's what they had to pay her when they lost the case. <laughs> that's a lot of money back then. Yeah. Yeah. So the railroad, even before the appeal case, tried to hire a man to seduce her to sully her reputation before oh. the case happened. Spoiler alert, the higher court did eventually overturn the ruling. Of course. Later in the United States when, you know, we started doing the mm-hmm. Jim Crow laws, etc. So she moves on. She's like, forget the railroad. Uh, she's living in Memphis, and she is kind of like living the social light lifestyle. She's acting in Shakespeare plays. She is in a debate society. She's moving in literary circles. She's stimulating. She's smart. She's beautiful. And all of these suitors are into her. Everybody wants to marry Ida. But she says... I will not do what my nature abhors by sugaring men just to get an escort. (laughs) She's like, I'm not going to get married if I don't want to get married right now. (laughs) I'm not going to do it. She's not ready. A man at her church starts a newspaper and he's like, oh, hey, Ida, will you write about your train experience for my newspaper? And she's like, sure, of course I will. Her article hits and it's a success. And then he asks her, write another write another. And the paper had out of town subscribers. This is unbeknownst to her. One of these subscribers is the editor of the New York globe. So he starts running her articles in his paper as well. Then she starts getting letters from journalists all over the country who have read what's gone out in the New York globe. And her writing is getting all these letters because she is very loud, very direct and does not sugarcoat literally anything. So she says things like, hey, people, don't get comfortable voting for Republicans. Stay pissed. She's, like, always trying to – she's very direct in talking to women and black people about what they should be doing. Uh She's, like, kind of like a don't blame the ref situation in games. Mm -hmm. She's very, like, look – the white people are going to be the white people. You yeah. need to act around them. Like, right. otherwise, it's your fault. And that got a lot of pushback from people. Yeah. She does a lot of victim blaming in her writing, which I don't excuse. Right. But it's just how she wrote. She was very uncomfortable with people doing nothing. She's like a Nike. She's like, get up and do it. Just do it all okay. the time. Like, if you're sitting around complacent, whining at your dinner table, that's your damn fault then. Because you're not out here writing newspapers. She thought everybody was her. Yeah, I was going to say this. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't excuse. She doesn't excuse like apathy at all. That's very interesting because I don't necessarily like totally agree with it. I don't agree either. <laughs> I don't agree either. I think it's not fair to accept that everybody should be putting their life and words on the line, specifically at this time, their life on the line. Right. For writing things like that in the newspaper. Yeah. And also it's like, I think there's also a big um, not acknowledging that a lot of people that would typically be in her situation are illiterate. Correct. You know what I'm saying? Like we're still in the process where we're trying to simply, you know, get them up to speed with like literally just like reading and writing. Exactly. You know, so she's a little more privileged than others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's very interesting though. And it also feels like kind of like the classic thing of like, you know, the first person to say things is typically going to go way too far oh yeah you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm, for sure but we also need that to then be like okay like ida set a fire so like let's see where we're at now let's just throw some logs on it right exactly (laughs) let's keep it burning (laughs) let's roast some hot dogs yeah (laughs) so i don't know why i want hot dogs and not marshmallows that was weird for me 
That is weird. I should have gone marshmallows. Okay. Mm. I enjoy a hot dog more than a marshmallow. So. Over the fire? Agreed. Yes. Agreed. Yes. I'm not a marshmallow fan. No, me neither. Specifically Peeps. What is that? Peeps are disgusting. If anybody likes Peeps, don't follow our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. Um, strong words. So, <laughs> while she's continuing to teach elementary school, she's becoming increasingly active in journalism and accepts an editorial position at a small Memphis journal called the Evening Star. Because Jim Crow laws are now in, she's starting to write about that. She's writing with this fiery rage. She's writing about the new poll taxes and how schools that house black kids have less money. And among black journalists, she becomes known as the princess of the press. (gasps) And because she has to keep herself safe, she starts writing articles under the pen name Iola, where we get Princess Ah, Iola, the name of the cocktail. Being a teacher, she wrote a lot about the school system. She's saying, and a lot of this is still true, you give the schools in black communities less supplies. Teachers at black schools make less money. Teachers at black schools have a harder job because there's more kids in their class and they have less to work with. And people are not liking that she's writing this. And then they really don't like when she writes an article about how white men on the school board are making black women give them favors to get jobs, (gasps) which is happening. Oh my God. And the way a lot of black women would get teaching jobs would be by being sexually assaulted by the white men on the school board. Oh my God. I did not know that that was a thing. Yeah. That's very upsetting. What's even worse about this situation is because Ida writes so bluntly is when this is released in the paper, her black coworker friend takes her own life. I was, you know, I was, I was thinking that I was like, she is exposing these exposing women. these women because the men are going to be fine regardless. Unfortunately, right. probably. That's very upsetting. It's tragic yeah. because, like, you are. You're doing, like, the hashtag Me Too movement for those women. They should be able to own their own story. And yeah. you told their story um, in right. a very blunt way. It's and it's like, not like they banded together and were like – and also, like you said, there's – what, she's one of 20 teachers? Black teachers. Black teachers? Yeah. Yep. So it's like you know who they're talking about. There's right. no way it can be like, well, it could be anybody. That's so embarrassing. You know, it's not Baltimore City or Maryland or whatever – the u.s but there's like a thousand there's so many black teachers that like the anonymity just isn't there for these women it's gone it's totally gone everybody knows who she's talking about that is not okay that's distressing yeah but and and it's so frustrating too because again it's like it shouldn't reflect on them but it will it does yeah and it's like th- that story did need to be told, yeah. but it needed a little more like like finesse, right? It and needed care. finesse, it and needed she doesn't have of. care or finesse, yeah. and she never learns it through <laughs> her entire life. She does not learn finesse or care. <sighs> but because of this, the school board releases her from her position mm-hmm. altogether. After this, she did become a equal partner and co-owner of a newspaper called the free speech and headlight which is a black newspaper in memphis along with two other men and journalists can ride on trains for free so she is spitting in the face of her (laughs) previous court case 
she goes into town all over the South and finds stories about injustice and just keeps telling them. Mm. She also decided to start printing her company's newspaper on pink paper so that illiterate people would know which one to buy <gasps> and then could take it to someone to read it to them. Just That's incredible. Buy the pink That's one. That's so smart. Yeah. Get the pink one. Oh, well, I hope they're not colorblind, too. Yeah, that would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. What a smart idea. Yeah, it's a really good idea. And I mean, the whole time, all she's writing is, keep your eyes open. Don't let somebody hoodwink you. Mm-hmm. Like, make the change you need to make. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, kind of mob law starts up in the South. Prominent black families are run out of town. Mm. People are being lynched all the time for literally nothing. Between this time and 1960, about 4,000 people of color are lynched in the South. And they're saying, the lynchers, that it is a vigilante justice to, quote, protect the white community. Protect it. Because they need so much protection. So much. And these people trying to live their lives. Protection. In 1989... A black man, though, named Thomas Moss, who's a great guy, deeply religious, friends with Ida, opens a grocery store that's doing extremely well. And it's doing so well that it's actually competing with the white-owned grocery store. So the white guys in the community start this rumor that a white mob is going to come for his store. So Thomas and his employees buy guns to protect themselves. They're like, okay, just like, just in case we'll have him here. Right. But then they tell like a group of sheriffs, the white guys, like go over to this store and like check out what Thomas is doing. So Thomas and the people in his store think this is the white mob and they start firing on the sheriffs. They kind of realize it's the sheriffs like a little bit in and Thomas stops and has all his employees put the guns down. But by this point, they've been shooting at the police Oh no! and like every black person in a five mile radius is arrested. Oh, my God. It's intense. Um, in the middle of the night, after these people are in jail, 75 men wearing masks show up and take Thomas and two of the other employees from the jail and lynch them. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, one of the people that's taking them from the jail is the sheriff. Like, they have the keys. It just seems all so orchestrated. It is. It's orchestrated to get rid of him. Yeah. Which is what all lynching was. Yeah. All of lynchings were to get rid of people that were threatening you. Yeah. And it seems like this was, like, this very elaborate plan to be like, no, it was justified because they shot at the sheriff. You know, like, everything about Angry this black mob. was so yeah. planned. So planned. This changed Ida forever. Because she knew Thomas and like she knew lynchings were happening, but she was always like, yeah, maybe they're taking guilty guys from jail and killing them, which is wrong because they Mm -hmm. don't get a a trial. But she was like, I know Thomas wasn't guilty. I know him. Mm -hmm. So this changed her forever. She started investigative journalism to record the exact circumstances of every lynching happening in the South. And she published them in gruesome details oh in newspapers going all over the United States. She published what actually happened, who the lynchers were, what it, photos if she could, drawings if she could, all over the U.S. Like, th- things people are cringing at at this yeah. time in history. They're like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, you should not be putting that in a paper. Mm-hmm. And then she tells everybody in Memphis, we can't do anything about getting murdered, but we can leave. So like Moses, she leads the people out of the city. And Memphis was 50% black people at this time. 
a huge percentage of the population leaves. She tells them, I mean, again, Rosa Parks, stop getting on the trolley cars. Stop buying from white businesses. Don't go to your job. Just get out of Memphis. And Memphis is like breaking down. Its economy is destroyed. I'm sure. Oh, my God. So then Wells and her anti-lynching commentaries begin to grow in a new newspaper or the newspaper she'd been working on, but now it's specifically like an anti-lynching newspaper, free speech. Um, And she is specifically publishing in respect to the imprisonment of black men suspected of raping white women. She gained no love for this sexual commentary. So what she was publishing and what was true is that black men and white women were having relationships. Right. They were having relationships. And then to protect them, or sometimes black men were accused of rape just to get rid of them. But right. sometimes black men and white women were having consensual relationships and it was found out and the black man was then lynched. So she publishes, this is not an exact quote. Hey, everybody, <laughs> if you keep crying rape, people are going to eventually find out that the white women of the South are not as virtuous as they're pretending to be. Ooh. And publishes that all over the newspaper. And woof, did this piss people off. They were like, tie Iola up to a stake, <gasps> rip her apart. Oh, my God. We're done. Well, because now she's committed the cardinal sin. She's gone after the... Purity, purity of white women, white women. which is <laughs> pure white women. She is attacked to the pure white women. Oh my God. Which is always their creed of like, this is what we're trying to protect, you know? So then if they don't have that, mm-hmm. then they don't have anything. Right. You know if, what I'm saying? If their this white like women are made up choosing thing. to have relationships with these black men, mm-hmm. then you have no reason have no to reason. lynch them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At all. <laughs> ah! Okay. <laughs> so a... She is fortunately out of town in Manhattan when this whole tired to a stake and killer thing comes out. Um, but a white mob ransacks the, the free speech office, destroys the entire building and its contents. <laughs> and um, there are no copies of the Memphis free speech that exists today. No. None. Uh, and Ida does not return to Memphis for over 30 years. Oh, my God. She can't go home. Yeah, I'm sure she would be murdered. Uh, yeah. Un- undoubtedly. <laughs> undoubtedly murdered. <sighs> so she accepts a job in New York <laughs> at the New York Age and continues her anti-lynching campaign from there. For the next three years, she lives in Harlem at the like as a guest in her friend's house. Um, but then she gets enough like time and money to actually publish a pamphlet called Southern Horrors that she can send everywhere. And it was a very educated statistical pamphlet that tells everybody the definition of lynching, the background of lynching. She outlines what's happening in lynching and the bell curve of when it started and how during slavery, black men weren't being killed because they were seen as an economic value. And now they are being murdered in cold blood. She gave 14 pages of statistics. Oh my God. She included graphic accounts and pictures and she included so much that President McKinley brings up lynching as an important issue. Wow. Her ideas are reaching the mouth of the president. Well, because also she is, I feel like she was like, okay, I put passion behind my earlier pieces, but like that wasn't doing it. So like now I'm going to present facts, right? you know, because this is something like 
you cannot argue with. Yeah, this is happening. Like when I say like you're, you know, white women aren't as pure as you think they are, mm-hmm. that's could be considered my opinion. Right. She was like, this is a number. Mm-hmm. She <laughs> was like, definition. I was like, going from doing op-eds to, yeah. like, to like doing real shit. Yeah. Like real shit journalism. So Southern Horrors and then a pamphlet called The Red Record document lynching. It captures the attention of Northerners who knew little about lynching at the time. And, I mean, she's able to rally support amongst white people in the North, but they're pretty much like, oh, my. And that's it. You know, they read it, (laughs) and that's it. So what happens is these Quaker women from Britain are like, we want you to come and speak in Britain because we think you could get real white support here. Wow. So she goes for two years (gasps) to Britain. Her first year... 1893 she gives 20 speeches her next year in britain she gives a hundred speeches and she's gaining white supporters all over england she had a huge sympathetic audience from them they had originally these quaker women asked frederick Douglass to come and frederick Douglass was kind of really old at that point yeah and he's the one who suggested ida to them so frederick <sighs> Douglass cool. is on her team which is like <clears throat> high five so while the american newspapers are like saying she's the absolute worst the people in britain are like no we actually believe what she's saying and yeah. one american newspaper who believed her published her speeches making her the first african-american woman to be paid as a correspondent in a white newspaper wow Ever. That? <laughs> so she's rallying support she's showing photos of lynchings london establishes their first anti-lynching organization in the world mm. because of her but there's a temperance movement woman named francis willard who's there at the same time and mm-hmm. she's talking shit about Ida and Ida's talking shit about her (laughs) because this temperance woman is trying to prove that the white women of the South are virtuous and Ida, she just doesn't like what Ida's like spilling her guts. Yeah. She took it very personally. So Frances Willard is over there talking shit and she gets the New York times to publish that black men are rapists and Ida is slanderous and nasty minded. (gasps) woman. And um, Frances openly, when the people in Britain are asking her when she's speaking about Ida, she says the colored race multiplies like the locusts of Egypt. And they were like, oh, well, now we definitely believe Ida because you're a huge fucking racist. What the fuck? Who says that on stage to like a group of people who are like, hey, this is what Ida said. Like, can you defend those remarks? And she just spews racist bullshit. Couldn't believe it. So, yes, Britain is siding with them. But when a newspaper pretty much called Ida a whore, she decides she's going to come home and sue them for slander. There you go. She hires a white lawyer, and he wants to do it, but he's busy with a little case called Plessy versus Ferguson at the time, which is, like, <laughs> the only thing we all remember from high school government. And then— <laughs> We didn't have a government class, so oh, I don't know what that is, actually. Right. What is it? Okay, it's the Supreme Court, it's the Supreme Court case that made the uh, separate but equal stuff happen. Oh. Yeah, so it got—didn't go the way we wanted. <laughs> Plessy gotcha. versus Ferguson, like, really—it was about a train car— incident where plessy and Ferguson, like he was ripped off a train car when he shouldn't have been and um that's when the separate but equal laws came to be so he says um listen i have this black attorney in chicago he'll do a great job for you his name's ferdinand barnett like go and see him 
well, she does, and he does do a great job. Such a great job that they end up getting married. <laughs> they like. I don't know if they exciting. Yeah, I don't know if they fall in love because like the weekend of their marriage, she goes like back to work, which what she calls her first love, journalism. Huh. So like, I think it's just he's a widower. He has two kids. Okay. Like she. He's big into anti-lynching. He's an accomplished lawyer. And I think she's just, like, ready, tired, settling maybe. I don't know. But she's just, like, she gets married. Which shocked everyone. They're like, can you be married to a man or a cause? What's your thing? She's like, can it be both? (laughs) I don't know. Nine months after she's married, she is pregnant. But she's also back to work. And she said... Quote, I honestly believe I'm the only woman in the United States who traveled throughout the country with a nursing baby to give political speeches. <laughs> How modern. Mm-hmm. She is traveling. She would get up on stage and give speeches, speeches and hand her baby off to a nursemaid so she could go up and talk oh and like, keep going. Um, and she's breastfeeding on the road and has nannies. And Susan B. Anthony commented saying she seems a little distracted. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like Susan B. Anthony. I mean, she would go and babysit Elizabeth Cady Stanton's kids. Yeah. So, like, she so gets she it. knew. Yeah. She did know. And in Susan B. Anthony's defense, at one of Ida's speeches, somebody stood up and started to heckle her. And Susan B. Anthony stood up and, like, tore that person <laughs> to shreds. Because as we know, Susan did think that race would complicate the women's rights movement. Yeah. But she was very anti-racist. Mm-hmm. So, it's like she also has this conflicting shit. And also... Susan fired a secretary at one point because she asked her secretary to do something for Ida. And she was like, I won't do that for a black woman. Oh and my Susan was like, then you won't do it for me. Wow. And fired her on the Good spot. Her. So, I mean, Susan has her, has her shit, has her yeah. shit. Listen to that episode. Yeah. You know, she, she has her shit, but she also like had her own moral compass that she was operating on. Yeah. I feel like that's the all women of this era. Yeah. I mean, really, frankly, all people ever. Everyone has their shit. Some is worse than others. But, (laughs) I mean, as we're talking about right now, like, there is some stuff about IDB was that, like, I don't agree with. Yeah. Doesn't mean I don't think she was an incredible, impactful woman. Right. Absolutely not. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, that's how everybody is. Oh, perfect. Somebody (laughs) said something to me. Somebody brought up like our episode about Hillary Clinton or something the other day on Twitter. Really? And like said something like, did you know X, Y, Z about Hillary Clinton? And I was like, yeah, I actually did. Did you listen to the episode? Yeah. We criticized. (laughs) We talked about all the bullshit that she did. Like, yeah, (laughs) you obviously don't know what we're doing here. So step away. Right. This podcast is not just a glowing review of every single woman we do. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, We've done like serial killers. (laughs) I need to have like a copy and paste response of like the list of terrible women we've done right. so that when they start <laughs> Ooh, Twitter okay so one thing that's really interesting about her and her husband is they were a true legal union partnership which was rare at this time hmm. they had similar interests they worked together beyond their two stepchildren they had four more children but they wow. were a close working relationship mm. they respected each other they were equal partners they both mm-hmm. worked full-time like it's very 2010s it's yeah. not something that you would assume happening in like a 1904 right. or yeah. whenever it's happening during their marriage together they protested the chicago world fair wow. <laughs> never seen it from this late before i know <laughs> <laughs> because there was not one black planner for the world fair 
world in quotes, and all the world fair black exhibits were like tribal. Oh yeah, African exhibits where like people were marched around in like tribal garb. It was like very insulting, yes. and disgusting. Yeah, very Peter Pan. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the black Americans were asking for one tent pavilion where they could talk about advancements of African Americans since slavery. Mm -hmm. And the fair said no. So then Haiti was like, you can have part of our booth if you want. And they were like, like the country of Haiti. Yeah. And they were like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) So they're there. They're handing out like they end up handing out 20,000 pamphlets that Ida wrote about like, and Frederick Douglass is there with her and oh they're like God. handing out pamphlets, but Helen Keller's there somewhere. Oh my God. Maud Everybody's Wagner is tatting people up. <laughs> Susan B. Anthony's over on like the side In the of women's, women's tent. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's there. I mean, dream situation. Yes. I feel like if you were to pick one place to go to in history, it should probably be the Chicago, Chicago World's World Fair. Fair. And you could, like, Everyone bounce around and meet everyone. There. I was in one of the buildings when I was in Chicago. <gasps> There's only two buildings in Chicago that still exist from the Chicago World's Fair. And I That's was in amazing. one of them. I made sure we got into one of them. Ooh, you could see if you can escape H.H. Holmes's house. <laughs> There's going to – I mean, honestly, this is – yes, that's the correct time travel. <laughs> correct time travel link. But it's, like, a whole year. You could say, I want to be at the Chicago World Fair for the entire year. There you go. You could say. There you go. Hmm. So, <laughs> turns out, uh, the U.S. is like, fine, we'll give you one day of the entire year, and they called it Darky Day. No. Yeah, they did. No, no. So, Ida boycotts it. She's like, I'm not going. Fuck them. This is ridiculous. Frederick Douglass ends up going, gives this impassioned speech, and it, like, changes a whole bunch of people's minds, oh, and it's amazing. And then she's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be such a hard ass. But the reason <laughs> she's so cool is she's a hard ass. Yeah. Like, so she just, she understands that her temper is sometimes not a virtue. <laughs> she then uh, went on to establish Chicago's first black kindergarten because her kids are about to go to school, and <laughs> she needs somewhere for them to go. Um, and it's in a lecture room of a church. And... This kind of demonstrates to her how, like, her personal life and activism often go hand in hand. Her children didn't get what she thought they should get from school. And she says, well, if that doesn't exist, create it yourself. Yeah. Just go and do it. But she was outraged by racial segregation at this point. And she wrote in the papers and in book publishers that segregation doesn't work integration works she's like one of the earliest people saying that now she really starts pissing people off in the women's movement and the black movement because she couldn't play well with others her and w.e.d du bois don't get along her and booker t washington don't get along she's just fighting with them at every turn she's fighting with the women she's making enemies she reminds me a little bit of mary wollstonecraft you know how she would like accuse women of not being feminist enough (laughs) (laughs) and everybody would be like shut the fuck up like (laughs) i feel like she's like that Later in her life, she started to focus less on lynching and more on the bigger picture of civil rights. She protested against what she felt was unfair. She was active in the National Women's Club movement, in the women's suffrage movement. She was a spokesperson for women's equality in the workplace. She was part of the National Equal Rights League, where she was chosen as a representative to Woodrow Wilson. She was involved in the National Women's Club movement. She She founded the Women's Era Club, which was the first 
Civic Black Club for Women. Hmm. She also succeeded in making the first housing project for women of color. She ran for Senate and lost, obviously. She uh, was involved in the Alpha Suffrage Club. She was part of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, (laughs) which got Illinois to give women the first um, east of the Mississippi right to vote. Wow. Yeah. Look at that. During World War I, the U.S. government placed Wells under surveillance, labeling her as a dangerous race agitator because of all of these clubs. Regardless, she kept up her work, and in 1917, she wrote a series of investigative reports that helped lynching to get its, like, first illegal act. Like, lynching is a legal end. Yeah. But then... She took part in a conference in Washington, D.C., and it founded one of the most important organizations we still have today. She is a founding member of the NAACP. <gasps> what? I feel like I knew that, she was like, but I forgot. Yeah. She's like on the board. That's of so the cool. NAACP. But even though she was a founding member and was there at its earliest days, they really start to box her out because the other members really hate her extreme volatile opinions. (laughs) They later say she was fitted for creative work, but not for the constraints of an organization. Pretty much she can stir the shit, but she can't work with us. (laughs) She's good at making things crazy. Mm -hmm. Heidi began at that point writing her own autobiography called Crusade for Justice, the autobiography of Ida B. Wells. But she never saw the book published as she died of kidney failure in Chicago in March of 1931 at the age of 69. She's still buried in the south side of Chicago. But this was so sudden that her autobiography dropped off in the middle of a sentence. Oh, my God. She was, like, really in pain from this kidney failure. Her daughter later edited and published the book in 1970. Since her death and her autobiography in the 70s, interest in her life has really grown. She has 10 awards named after her. Many memorial foundations have established museums. And statues. Chicago placed her in their Women's Hall of Fame. She is, the housing projects there are named after her, the ones that she started. She was placed in the National Women's Hall of Fame and listed as one of the 100 greatest African Americans to live in our country. Mm. She has a postage stamp. She has portraits. She has bills. She has Google Doodles. She has statues. She has a belated obituary. She has awards, plaques. School buildings, parks, public places, books, films, stage, documentaries, the list goes on. My God. Ida is famous. They even gave her the Pulitzer Prize after her life for her outstanding and courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African Americans during the era of lynching. Yeah, because imagine if she hadn't have written those things. We wouldn't have known. We wouldn't know. She dug so deep into those. During a 2020 protest of the murder of George Floyd, the protesters occupied an area of Tennessee that was called the Ida B. Wells Plaza on purpose. In 2021, Chicago erected a monument, which is one of only their three statues of women, like Hmm. in Chicago, um, in the Bronzeville neighborhood near where she lived, where her old housing project is. And on March 29th, 2022, President Biden signed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, which made lynching a federal hate crime. Finally. Finally. My 2022. God. That's and outrageous. Emmett Till also from Chicago. Let's point yeah. that out. Like, that this is so 
so connected. And let's point out that, like, I think it's insane that she is writing about stuff that was coming up that we associate with the civil rights movement right after slavery was abolished. It started in the 1860s, like, and our last documented lynching happened in the 1960s. A hundred years. And I feel like she knew where the direction was going. She was like, if we don't nip this in the bud right now, it is going to get so much worse. And she was right. She was right. She knew that if they didn't do something about it in the moment, it's just like unbelievable that (laughs) how wise she was. Yeah. In general, Ida was known for being direct and never keeping her mouth shut. She was sidelined by the very people she was trying to help. And her efforts ultimately made the United States a better, more inclusive, less racist place. But it made it harder for her while she was alive. Mm -hmm. But I don't think she minded. (laughs) I want to end with a quote by her where she said, One had better die fighting against injustice than die like a dog or a rat in a trap. Whoa. She did what she wanted. That is like, after hearing her story, that quote makes so much sense for her. (laughs) She did what she wanted. I love that. That's Ida. What an amazing person. What a firecracker. What a complicated person. So complicated. And like I knew her story would be long. Mm -hmm. I knew I was going into this week like, yeah, here we go. But I'm so happy I did. I feel like I learned so much. First and foremost, I assumed lynching always meant hung. Mm Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. Mm -mm. I didn't know that. Mm -mm. I'm maybe an idiot. Like, I knew that obviously people would do other, like, shoot, quarter, draw, like, black people in the South. I just thought lynching specifically meant hanging. But it's the last name of a guy from the Revolutionary War. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. James Lynch, like, um, he would do vigilante acts against British people. Oh. To, like, it was, like, vigilante British justice, like Mm -hmm. tar and feather or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they used his last name as wow. like a vigilante justice to save ourselves from black people. I'm using huge air quotes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fingers are going crazy. <laughs> um, so that's her story. Amazing. Do you feel yeah. enlightened? I do, honestly. Good. Good. Um, all right. I'm ready so, for some Disney. Let's get into Disney. Ah! We'll be right back. first disney princess of the season <laughs> very exciting oh. we always love this time of year <laughs> it is so fun we're running out too i know it's very scary i don't want to run out <laughs> that's okay they're making more movies yeah they'll be, they're, we'll be fine. they're we'll making be fine. more movies It'll be fine. <laughs> um this is such a beautiful drink thank you i really wanted to nail that like jasmine teal i hope i did i, I don't really know think you did if i Just, put quite enough pucker in it just put um a filter on it on the instagram photo there we go yeah perfect <laughs> so do you want to know what it is i absolutely do so this is called a prize to be drunk uh <laughs> cute cute <laughs> it is an this is a crazy cocktail it's an ounce and a half of white rum a uh, half ounce of blue carousel half ounce of green apple liqueur <laughs> a simple syrup heavy cream egg white you top it with club soda but Here's, and you do a little bit of lemon juice. And then here's another thing. So you make the rim. So you mix lemon zest and sugar. So, because I wanted to add a little bit of the gold the flair. Headband. The that gold headband. Flair. So Beautiful. Cheers. I love it. 
Interesting. It's very good. <laughs> we don't use a lot of green apple liqueur, so I can definitely taste that because it's like a new flavor. Mm-hmm. We don't use a lot of it. No, but I feel like there's just like a lot going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very good. I like it, though. And I like the lemon zest in the sugar rim. Yes. That's very interesting. And um, new. Our cocktails are outrageous this week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sorry, Miss Britta. This is mm. absurd. And they're so, like, fluffy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very fluffy cocktails. <laughs> All right. So what do you know about Princess Jasmine? <laughs> so um, I know that this is, like, one of the only prince Disney princesses where the movie's not named after her. Mm-hmm. It's named after the boy. And I know Aladdin is an old story from, like, night and daytime book. And the princess <laughs> is not Jasmine. She's mm-hmm. by another name. Mm-hmm. And um, I I know that, like, she's definitely, like, the hot Disney princess. Mm-hmm. And when they started making Aladdin, I feel like he was supposed to be a lot younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that they meet. Aladdin's a big liar, liar, pants on fire. Mm-hmm. She loves him anyway for some reason because <laughs> uh, he's hot. Mm-hmm. And then he's very, he's very hot. And then um, they go through a whole journey together. Um, she's supposed to marry her dad's advisor, a very Rasputin type character. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the third movie, they're trying to get <laughs> married. Yeah. So I decided to ignore the second and third movie. Mm-hmm. Um, let's mm-hmm. be clear. Mm-hmm. Return of Jafar, absolute trash. Yeah. Aladdin and the King of Thieves. Pretty good. Very good movie. Pretty good movie. I watched that maybe as many times as the original Aladdin. It's very good. I loved it so much. Uh-huh. It's so good. Um, so yeah, so let's be clear. I will not be going into those movies. <laughs> okay. So we're, we're on like touch nothing but the lamp. The exactly. Lamp, the lamp. Good. Exactly. Um, so, you know, before we start, mm-hmm. Literally two times a week, <laughs> I sing to myself, Princess Ali, fabulous she, <laughs> Ali Abane, all the time. That's very cute. And I've done it <laughs> since I was little. Like, oh my since gosh. the movie came out, I have changed the words to that song. That's perfect. Because my grandmother <laughs> used to call me Ali Ababwa. Really? Yeah, when I was little. That's so cute. Um, she still does now because when I was a teenager, I got really embarrassed and was like, don't call me that anymore. But now that she is struggling with dementia, she does it again, and I actually like it. That's very, very sweet. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. Tell me. I've obviously watched the Disney documentary about it, oh, but yeah. I want to hear it again. But there's from, so much more. From your <laughs> mouth. Okay. So my sources are Modern Mouse. It's that girl with the glasses who does like the analyses of the Disney princesses. Right. Um, the Myths and Legends podcast, the aforementioned Disney documentary, and Wikipedia, of course. And then there's all sorts of other places. I was getting like little snippets of information, but like, because this is a very old story. So I was going uh, around a lot of different places. So let's be clear about that. So. We can start our story in a million different places, but I am choosing to start in an ancient kingdom where a sultan has just discovered that his wife has been unfaithful. He orders that her head be chopped off, and then in order to guarantee that he is not scorned again, he decides that he will make a a law that he gets to marry a virgin every day and behead her the next morning so that no woman can cheat on him ever again. He goes on and on wedding and slaughtering his brides for quite some time until there are almost no suitable women left in the kingdom. 
because he has killed all of them. The royal vizier does not want to disappoint his sultan, so he reluctantly offers up his own daughter's hand in marriage, even though he knows that her fate is going to be certain death. Her name is Shahrazad, and she is not like the other women. She is determined to stay alive. After their night together, which they make love for hours apparently, Shahrazad asked the sultan if he would like to hear a story. And he said, of course, he loved stories. And she says, I come from a land yeah. of a faraway place. Is that what she hey, says? it's so. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> um, she proceeds to enchant him with a fantastical tale packed with adventure and romance. And it's just so exciting. But when the morning came and it was time for her execution, she said, well, too bad I have to die now because we were just getting to the end of my story. So now you won't know how it ends. But, you know, so it goes. The king just couldn't bear to not hear the end of her wonderful tale. So he postponed her sentence and said, you will rejoin me tonight and finish your story. But tomorrow you will die. So that night she finishes her story. And then without a beat, just launches into another one. And for the next thousand and one nights, she finishes a story and then starts another one just to have to finish it again the next night. And after those 1,001 nights of her postponing her own execution, the sultan does eventually fall in love with her and he abolishes the law so she won't die. She not only saved her own life, but also the life of the other women in the kingdom who surely would have been next if this law persisted. This is the opening of the book Arabian Nights, or, it was, or as it was first known, A Thousand and One Nights. See, I knew that there was a night and day mm -hmm. thing going on. <laughs> Which is where we find the story of Aladdin and, more importantly, the story of Jasmine. So, fun fact number one about Jasmine, her story exists within another story of a badass woman. So... The tales that we know in this book, those these are the stories she's telling to keep herself alive. Isn't that mm. interesting? I didn't know that. It's like Inception. Yeah. It's a story within a story. Exactly. I like that. Oh, it's so great. So now we are going to jump to the year 1704 in Paris. Le Mille et Une Nuit, or A Thousand and One Nights in French, had just been published by Antoine Galland. It was a translation of The Thousand and One Nights, and it was rapidly becoming the most popular book in France. This translation of medieval Arabic fairy tales was so different, so interesting, so exotic. Mm. <laughs> it's like super close. It's like across the Mediterranean. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm using the term exotic because obviously this uh, was a big um, push towards the unfortunate era of Orientalism mm. that has plagued many people for so long. Um, but it was so popular that it became one of the first books to almost outsell the Bible. Like that's how popular this fucking book was. The book gave us such stories as Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves and Sinbad the Sailor. But of course, we will be focusing today on Aladdin's wonderful lamp. Now, right off the bat, we have to acknowledge that Galand was translating this story for a white Western audience. So he took a lot of liberties. <laughs> Many people, he said, bonjour, bonjour. <laughs> exactly. Many people say that his translation barely resembles the original text at all because he took out all of the poetry and the sex which there was a lot of both this also led to him adding two stories that he wrote himself one being alibaba and the other being the story of aladdin 
Now, he claims that he did not make the story up, that it was told to him by a Syrian man named Hanna Diab after Galand asked him if he knew any Arabian tales. And Hanna Diab told him this fantastical story of a tomb-raiding poor boy who found a magical lamp and met this genie and fell in love with a princess and all that. So for a very long time, people thought that this was Galand saving his own ass and being like, no, I swear I didn't write it. I mean, I wrote it, but like, you know, it was a story told me to me orally. So like, that's why there's no other proof of this story before me. So he's kind of trying to preserve the authenticity of his translation. Mm. But in 1993, historians did finally find the real Hannah Diab. Like this guy actually did exist in the 1700s. And more interestingly, they found out that he grew up as a poor boy who had lost his father at a young age, which in the in a, the original story he does, and he went tomb raiding as a child and discovered an old oil lamp. So, like, maybe Hanna Diab really did tell this story, and it was he based the character of Aladdin off of himself. It's a very Prince and the Pauper situation, except it's yes. one guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating, though? It is. Like. There was a person who went in, into an old cave and found an old lamp. Like, this guy existed. <laughs> so we'll never... Never can your friends do this. Exactly. <laughs> we'll never know for sure the true origins of the story. So with that, let's get into the original French-Syrian-Arabian-esque story. So Aladdin is a lazy boy living in poverty in China. Now... It seems like they just named this place China because it sounded far away. But in all of the descriptions, like in the story, it's a typical Middle Eastern town, such as the fact that the ruler is a sultan and the characters are all Muslim. (laughs) Aladdin's father has died, so it's just him and his mother, until an African magician comes by claiming to be Aladdin's uncle. He's like, hey, I know you guys are poor because my brother died, so... Aladdin, come with me, and I will make you a wealthy merchant. Aladdin and his mother say, great, and we would love to have more money than nothing. And (laughs) Aladdin goes off with this strange man. He takes Aladdin to a cave, and he said, here's the deal. I need you to go into this cave, fetch an oil lamp that's in there. Now, while you're down there, you're going to be passed by like a butt ton of treasure, but you can't touch the treasure until you have the lamp. Once you have the lamp in your hand... Here are some sacks. Grab as much as you want, but you have to get the lamp first. And then to prove to Aladdin that he's on the level and not trying to trick him, he gives Aladdin a magic ring. And he's like, take this ring for protection. Aladdin goes in, gets the lamp, fills his bags with a whole bunch of treasure for himself. But then when he's trying to get out of the cave, he has too much stuff. He can't do it. So he asks the uncle for help. And he's like, okay, but give me the lamp first. And then we all know what happens because it's pretty similar to how it happens in the movie, actually. Right. <laughs> um, his uncle, he doesn't give him the lamp. The uncle gets so mad and he ends up slamming the cave shut and Aladdin is trapped inside. Funny enough, it's not the genie or the jinn as it's originally called. So the genies are originally called jinns. Um, it's not the genie in the lamp that helps him out. There is a genie in the ring that his uncle gave him. Oh, two genies. A double genie. So he rubs the ring and the genie comes out. He says, I'm here. I'm here. I'm your slave. You have unconditional wishes. 
And Aladdin goes, I just wish to go home to my mom. Aladdin gets home. His mom is so happy to see him. And she's like, wow, what a nice lamp. I bet this will fetch a lot of money at the market. And she starts to clean it by rubbing it. And this, of course, releases the genie of the lamp. And he's like, hello, I'm your slave, unlimited wishes. And by the way, I'm even more powerful than the genie of the ring. So you can just ignore him from here on out. The mom asks, she wishes, for food. She's like, I just want food. I'm so hungry. So the genie provides them with an elaborate feast. And they notice that the plates that the genie serves the food on are very expensive silver plates. And he doesn't wash and reuse the plates. New plates appear every time he makes food. So Aladdin and his mother ask for food and then start selling the plates that it comes on. And that's how they start making money and, like, starting to live a comfortable upper-middle-class lifestyle, which is so interesting. Like, they could probably just – they could just ask him for jewels and money, but instead they're just asking him for food and then selling the plates that it comes Well, on. they're scrappy. I know. You know what I mean? I also – I don't know. It's just – it's very interesting. So, I don't know. It's, they're going about it in a very roundabout way. <laughs> So anyways, they're finally out of poverty. They're so happy until one day when Aladdin catches sight of the sultan's daughter. Her name is Badrubaldor, which means full moon, which is a common metaphor for female beauty in Arabic culture. Uh, and fun fact, apparently Badrubaldor actually makes many appearances in the other Arabian Nights tales. And she's always referenced as the most beautiful woman in the world. And Aladdin discover, or decides that he must marry the princess. So he asks his mother to go to the sultan and ask for her hand in marriage. So the mother goes to the sultan and for days just stands at the back of the royal room, like, very nervously. Because she's like, this is crazy. We're poor people. <laughs> like, that's the princess. Like, this is not going to work. But then she finally gathers up the courage to talk to him. And she says, my son would like your daughter's hand in marriage. The sultan and his royal vizier look at each other and they just laugh and laugh until she opens up her basket and they see the most beautiful jewels they have ever seen in their life. And she's like, do you want to talk now that I have all these jewels? And the sultan says, you know what? Deal. Uh, your son can marry my daughter. Uh, money, please. <laughs> <laughs> but the royal vizier is like, hey, I was really hoping my son could marry your daughter. So please don't do this. To which the sultan replies, okay, I'll give you three months to come up with the same amount of money, and then we have a deal. So he tells Aladdin's mom, like, oh, why don't we just wait three months? Let me get the wedding together, and then in three months, we'll have this gorgeous wedding for, you know, Aladdin and Bedrubaldor. And she says, wonderful. So everyone goes home, and by month two... The sultan has completely forgotten about Aladdin and his mom. Does not care. So when Aladdin and his mom arrive three months later for the wedding, they discover that the sultan has gone back on his word and Badrubaldor has been engaged to the vizier's son. Now, Aladdin is not just disappointed. He is fucking pissed. So he asks the genie for another wish to transport the princess's bed to him on her wedding night. Apparently, it sounds really creepy. I don't know if it was different in the original version or whatever. I don't know if it's changed over time, but apparently nothing. There's no. He doesn't like assault her or anything. Is he just like getting her out of this arranged marriage? So he's having her bed transported for two reasons. He wants to scare her and her husband. That's for sure. And he also wants to make it impossible for them to consummate their marriage. So he starts doing this 
every night transporting the bed to I guess I don't know if it was like his house or like a third location I don't really know I I didn't get that far (laughs) that nice shack that nice loft shack yeah (laughs) (laughs) the newlyweds are horrified because they don't know what's going on and they think that they're cursed so they tell the sultan and he's like okay well since you never consummated the marriage um and it's cursed you know we'll just split you two up like no big deal annul it this is not happening and of course then Aladdin comes swooping in to claim his bride but by now, the sultan kind of wants him to prove himself. And so he asks Aladdin to come back with more jewels, 10,000 servants, like whatever, like these crazy amounts of things. Golden peacocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's got 53. Camels. Which he, the whole deal. <laughs> um, which he easily provides by simply wishing for them with the genie. And that sultan is like, wow, this is like really impressive. Like anything I ask for, he just has. This guy is so wealthy. <laughs> and then Aladdin really puts it over the top when he asks the genie to build a magnificent palace for him and the princess right behind the sultan's palace in one night. The sultan wakes up to this gorgeous palace right outside his window. And he goes, I cannot believe that Aladdin can do this. This is crazy. And he's like, you know what? I decided it. You're the best son-in-law ever. I love you. Here's my daughter. So Bedrubledor and Aladdin get married. They fall in love. They're living this magical life. The Sultan is happy. And they think they're at the fairy tale ending. But then faking magician uncle receives word that the wealthiest man in the world has just married the princess and his name is Aladdin. And he's like, that little shit has my lamp and is living my dream life. Oh, no. So he decides that the way to go about this is to pose as an old crazy merchant selling brand new lamps in exchange for old ones. And the people of you know China think that this is the funniest shit ever. And they're telling each other, oh, my gosh, it's such a gas. You have to go to the crazy old merchant. He's going to give you a brand new lamp for your old one. It's so crazy. They think it's hysterical. The princess hears about this, and she goes, I have to do this. That's so funny. So she goes to a servant, and she says, bring me an old lamp to, you know, to give to this guy. I'm gonna, this is going to be great. And he says, bitch, this shit is a Ryan home built, like, last month. We don't have anything old here. <laughs> Nothing old. Like, the drywall nails are popping exactly. out. <laughs> and then she remembers that Aladdin has an old lamp in his closet. So she goes, gets the lamp, and trades it to the old kooky man for a new one. The uncle, now with the lamp in his hands, totally drops the act. He rubs the lamp and wishes for the genie to transport the palace and everything Aladdin owns to his homeland in Africa. And the genie does. So when Aladdin comes home, he sees that everything is gone. He is obviously very confused, and then he gets pretty scared because the sultan is like, if my daughter isn't back in 40 days, I'm going to fucking kill you. Aladdin wanders around for like two weeks searching for his wife and his house until he remembers, I have a ring that has a whole other genie in it. (laughs) So he rubs the ring. The genie comes out. He goes, please undo whatever the last genie did. Just make my life back to the way it was. But he can't because he's not as powerful as the lamp genie. So Aladdin is like, okay, I guess just, um, can you set me like next to my palace? And he goes, yes, I can do that. So he gets set next to the palace. He sneaks in and successfully reunites with the princess. 
She tells him all about how the uncle has been trying to sleep with her every night, but she has been successfully avoiding his advances, and this gives Aladdin an idea. The next night, the princess dresses seductively and tells her captor that she's finally ready to cooperate and be his wife. And she goes, and you know what? Let's celebrate this momentous occasion by having a really nice dinner, and we have to have wine. So they have the dinner, they have the wine, and she goes, actually, it's a custom in my country for um, the couple to drink out of each other's wine glass, so, like, let's do that. So he goes, okay. So she gives her wine glass to him, and he takes it, and he's looking at it kind of suspiciously for a moment, and then is quickly distracted by her kissing him. He forgets absolutely everything that he was concerned about in the moment, drains the glass of wine, and proceeds to die from the poison that she has put in there. (laughs) Aladdin comes in, cuts the guy's head off, just to be sure. (laughs) And then once reunited with the lamp and Bedrubledore, he asks the genie for everything to be transported back to his homeland of China. Everyone is happy. Aladdin eventually takes over the throne. And this is when the true fairy tale ending happens. And it's said that their offspring rule over China for generations to come, with no one ever truly knowing how the little street rat did it. Because he doesn't tell anyone. This might be the most accurate Disney movie of all time. I was blown away. Like, uh, (laughs) most of those scenes are in the in the movie they're in like a different order but yeah. like they definitely all happen his he's transported to mm-hmm. a different place mm-hmm. there's the old man mm-hmm. there's the there's there's lots happening there isn't that crazy no flying carpet the, but that's the, fine the kiss the ki- oh yeah jasmine, jasmine and her captor well when she turns into her red night yeah <laughs> she's a seductress then isn't that crazy though yeah. i was like really surprised by how many elements they kept in the disney version yes very yeah, i agree i everything you said i was like oh that actually that's something that happened yeah yeah for sure <laughs> so that's why i really wanted to tell the full story like the original one it's so interesting so obviously when disney decided to retell it they did change a few things not as many as i thought <laughs> <laughs> um one of them being the princess character First off, they wanted her name to be a little more familiar to a Disney audience uh, and a little bit easier to pronounce. I don't think we would be as big of fans of Bedrubledore. Mm-hmm. So they went with Jasmine because it was, frankly, a prettier name. There's a Jasmine Flower, and there is a popular actress at the time whose name was Jasmine Guy. So people were familiar with the name. And if you're curious as to who Jasmine Guy is, she was Whitney on A Different World. Ah! Great. But then while developing Jasmine as a character, they were having some trouble with her personality. She was originally conceived as kind of this spoiled materialistic princess, and they didn't really want to do that. They're like, she seems kind of one-dimensional, and why then would he want to be with her? You know, like, no, this isn't working. But they couldn't really change her without getting rid of another character who was kind of already serving that purpose. Aladdin was supposed to have a mother in the original version of the film. In fact, they had, like, written, I think, like, a song for her and recorded some of her lines. But the character wasn't quite working. And in order to make a stronger Jasmine, they kind of had to sacrifice the mother and give some of her, like, more moral characteristics to Jasmine. 
And then things really fell into place when they decided that the moral of the story should be focused on the idea of freedom. Everyone in this film feels trapped where they are, even though they are all in such different positions of power. And I think that that's one of the things that does connect people to Jasmine is because she feels very trapped. And we get to know, I feel like we get to know a lot about her personality and her insecurities because she is feeling the same thing as Aladdin and the genie, but just in a different way. Yeah, and I think they also bring it to the point where the Sultan feels trapped as well. Like, oh my he gosh. can't change the laws. Yeah, and also, like, he's literally being manipulated and, mm. uh, what do you call it? Hypnotized. Hypnotized, yes. And I think Jafar feels trapped in his position. You know, he's like, I don't want to be the vizier anymore. I want to be the Sultan. Right. Everyone in the movie feels trapped. And then Abu is trapped inside of an elephant's body. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I also, like... I, this strikes me as like such a, you know, Asian tale in the way that Buddha was like a really wealthy prince mm-hmm. who's like dad didn't want him to leave the palace. And then he's like, oh, well, I left and I realized for the first time people were poor yeah. and suffering. Mm-hmm. And now I realize that I've been sheltered my whole goddamn life. Like that same story happens to Jasmine. And I can't help but think like it's inspired by the lives of these royal people yeah. living in central, southern, and eastern Asia yeah. who just, like, were behind the walls while people were dying. Yeah. I mean, and we will talk because it is inspired by a story like that. Yeah. I mean, not exactly like that, but Close. we'll get into it. Yeah. Um, so now they had this cool, confident young woman who was kind of going through some shit, but absolutely gorgeous. Um, but then... It provided another problem for them. (laughs) As the character of Jasmine started to progress, it started to become clear that she was way out of Aladdin's league. (laughs) Uh, Yes. So when they were developing Aladdin, they didn't want him to be the typical underwhelming, you know, Prince Charming character. Because let's face it, all of the Prince Charmings, very bland. Yeah. That's why he's got to get his little song at the beginning. Yeah. One jump ahead of the something. Redline. Red what is it? Red um, I so. steal only what I can afford. And that's everything. That's everything. It's like the millennial theme song. It absolutely is. It's just millennials God. singing about their lives. And the, the boomers are riffraff. Street, street rat. rat. <laughs> I don't buy that. Exactly. God. I watched it last night. Let me tell you, that movie holds up. It, it does. is so fucking good. Her in the fountain when she hits the water. Oh. But what if I don't want to be a princess? <laughs> oh, Jasmine. Um, okay. <laughs> Where am I? So they didn't want him to Do fall. Do you trust me? <laughs> Sorry, guys. They didn't want him to fall into this trap. So they decided to make him kind of a young, scrappier, whimsical underdog character. Without nipples. <laughs> No nipples in sight. <laughs> um, so they act like in the original drawings, he seems a little more like if Mowgli was aged up like maybe three years. Yeah, he's like a lad. He's a little boy. Um, and they thought that was going to be fun. Like, oh, like he's a young guy, you know, like he's not like a mature man. But then they were like, but this doesn't make sense now because we have like Julia Roberts and then he's like Michael J. Fox. Like Mm -hmm. Michael J. Fox is very cute, but he was like very young and smaller. And they're like, 
that pairing doesn't make sense. So they decided to retool their main character so he could be worthy of Jasmine. Uh Yaddy, 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 yaddy. Which I am obsessed with. As far as Jasmine's physical appearance, she was based off of a few different celebrities. Like we said, Jasmine Guy. Uh, She had a little bit of Jennifer Connelly in her. But actually, the main inspiration came from kind of an unusual place. The animator Mark Henn was having a severe artist block when trying to design Jasmine. He had just done Ariel and Belle, and he was trying to come up with something unique. This is the sweetest thing I've ever heard. I know. I know. (laughs) And he pulled out a picture from his wallet. It was of his sister, Beth, when she was in high school. And he was like, oh, my God, that's it. She's Jasmine. That's what I've been looking for. So Beth became kind of a legend at Disney. Apparently, people started to ask Mark for his sister's numbers so they could go on a date with Princess Jasmine. And then her kids would go to school and brag that their mom was a Disney princess. And then the year the movie came out, she sewed Jasmine costumes for her and her daughter, like probably before you could even buy one. Right. (laughs) And then there was another big element of Jasmine to figure out, and that was her voice. A young blonde woman named Linda Larkin was cast as the speaking voice for Jasmine, which was not initially what they were going for. They were going to go for more of like a robust, like Lauren Bacall voice. Mm -hmm. But there is something about her voice that's, very very unique and i i like i like the way jasmine talks yeah i I do do but then for the first time ever they decided to cast someone else for the singing voice because they cast larkin before a whole new world was written and they're like hey we have this song for jasmine and she was like uh i can't sing like that she was like i can sing a little bit but that's like you need a broadway actress for that like that's insane you need somebody who can sing a ballad exactly so this caused a problem because disney had originally wanted the princesses singing and speaking voices to always be the same but then with this project after they cast robin williams as the genie they're like now we're entering a different realm where we're having like really specific voice actors and like really good people like voice acting is something that i think a lot of people don't respect because like oh you just go in a booth and you record your lines right Mm -mm. there's a whole art to it you can tell when it sounds awkward yes and so now they're like oh we're hiring like more high caliber voice actors for those speaking lines but we also want the singing voices to be just as good and like they're like i guess they don't have to be the same person. Right. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And, like, it's okay to have two different voices for this. But this was the movie that kind of, like, broke that mold for them. And this is where Broadway and Disney legend Lea Salonga comes in. Mm-hmm. She had mm-hmm. just come off an incredible run of Miss Saigon on Broadway. And at 21 years old, she was then asked to voice a Disney princess. In actually a very cute way. Apparently, the casting director went to see her perform and then left a note on her dressing room door asking her to voice Princess Jasmine. That's so <laughs> Just sweet. Just left a note. And the rest is history. She would later also provide the singing voice of Mulan. Mm-hmm. So she has the distinct honor of voicing two Disney princesses, making her an official Disney legend. So... In the Disney version, we meet Jasmine, and she is this strong, confident young woman who's feeling very trapped inside of her gorgeous palace with her pet tiger, Raja, 
who was originally going to be a lady in waiting, but why have another human when you can have a tiger? Every princess needs an animal sidekick. They really do. And especially when she's stomping out of rooms as much as she does. Yeah. She yes. loves to stomp out. Yes, she does. And Ariel couldn't stomp. She could only swim. Yeah. So, like, this is very important. <laughs> and when she did get legs, she couldn't use them very well. Right. She was, like, a little jiggly. Yeah. <laughs> um, she must marry a prince by her next birthday, according to the law. And I don't remember if we get an ex- exact age in the movie, but an online search said that she is 15 going on 16, which mm-hmm. is so fucking annoying. It's like, just make them, like, 21. That's yeah. so crazy. Elsa's 21. She's the oldest Disney princess. Good. They should all be that age or older. This is insane <laughs> that we're making yeah, them teenagers. Snow White was 14, 14. I think. the youngest. And also, it's like, we don't even, their age is, like, never a plot point. Except for Ariel. She says, I'm 16. I'm not a child anymore. Baker 18 then. <laughs> Officially not a child anymore. So well, crazy. You don't know about murder people like that. <laughs> no, she's that regular person. Yeah, fair. So. <laughs> so Jasmine dresses up as a regular person and escapes the palace to be among the people of Agrippa. And apparently this storyline was inspired by the film Roman Holiday with Audrey Hepburn because <sighs> Princess Anne does that. Mm. She dresses up and she it, like well, actually i think she's like in her nightgown or something but she like escapes the palace i just want to be a normie yeah. um i am not going to go into the whole disney plot line because we've all seen it mm. but mm. i do want to point out that jasmine repeatedly makes decisions to try and rescue herself throughout the movie one of the big feminist critiques of jasmine is that they say she's always waiting to be rescued but i don't think that that's true at all no we see in the very beginning that she's choosing to sabotage her marriage matches she literally then escapes the palace to run away on her own and then in the end when she's being trapped by jafar we see her fighting back and trying to like trick him and like get the lamp you know like i don't see her as like ever being passive the only other time she's like really in a bind is when she's in that fucking hourglass like what and also she when she finds out that Aladdin's lying, she is mad. Yes. It's not like she just accepts him. Like, she's yeah. pissed the fuck off. She's like, you've been lying to me this whole time. That's not cool, man. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I love that when she also, like, she does it, she figures it out in a very cunning way. She, mm-hmm. like, tricks him into it because yeah. she's a very smart person. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing. People often don't think that she's feminist enough because she doesn't talk about reading books and you know doing this and doing that like you know a bell character would and they're like well that means she's not a feminist and it's like that's no, not what that means doesn't also like, like in the live action one are we talking about that at all yeah yeah, yeah. okay I, I haven't seen it um i watched yeah. some scenes from it in the live action one she does a very similar thing where like they're looking at a map together and she's like where did you say you're from yeah she's like i know what's on this fucking map and you made up a town made it up you're a dummy (laughs) yeah she's like a very even more one step towards feminist in the live action movie yeah Mm -hmm. um but yeah i just i don't know i I just don't think that you have to be like a hermione to be a feminist because like she is very smart she picks up on she picks up on things even in the animated movie it's unfair to say like being a prototype feminist is the only type of feminist yeah right and an inclusive club. Yeah. And then, of course, people think that she um, is not feminist because of her attachment to Aladdin, you know. And But I think it's very cool that at the end of the movie, she says the words, I choose him. You know what I'm saying? Like, and they don't get married. 
Yeah, they don't. Not until the third movie. She's one of the few Disney princesses that doesn't get married at the end. Yeah. Which until now. Cool. Now there's a lot that have no love interest. Yeah. But back then, not getting married at the end, very everybody cabin. did. I know. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I just, I think the idea that she's not a feminist character because of all these like things is like so crazy. And then of course, like people are like, oh, she's too scantily clad to be a feminist. But this is the thing. People think of her as a feminist icon, but a third wave feminist icon. So the third wave of feminism was more about, you know, like you can be strong and powerful and speak up for yourself. And you can also be in control of your sexuality. And I think Jasmine is a character that absolutely embodies that. I mean, the whole point of the movie is that she wants to say in her love life and she'll point out, she's like, I know I'm beautiful, but then she's quick to say that she's more than just her looks, you know, but like, she's like, Oh no, I'm hot. Like, I know that. And I love that. And I'm, I'm good with naming it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then, of course, there's the part where she's enslaved by Jafar. And she's put in this outfit that's, I think, kind of meant to be demoralizing by Jafar and supposed to, like, portray that he owns her. Um, Which is funny because it's just her outfit, but in red. red. It's, like, not even that different. (laughs) But then she flips the situation and she uses her sexuality to regain her power by seducing him. So Aladdin can get to the lamp. Mm -hmm. And again, it's very similar, but it's like, you know, just red and has some upper arm bangles and her hair's in a ponytail, but like (laughs) a high pony, a high pony. pony. (laughs) It's all the way up. Yep. On top. But yeah, so people, you know, use all that to say that she is not a feminist character, but I think that she's just a different kind of feminist character that they hadn't seen before. Yeah. Feminism can be sexy. People weren't yet ready for that in the 90s because also... The 90s was, like, the um, purity era. Remember, like, everybody's like, look at my purity rings. Mm -hmm. Like, the interviews with Justin Timberlake being like, I'm never going to have sex. Oh, yeah. Calm down. Can everybody calm down? I read a whole book uh, on that in college called Chastity is Sexy. (laughs) (laughs) The 1990s were so weird. Yes. Very strange era. (laughs) Um, Now, is her outfit historically accurate of a woman living in medieval... Middle Eastern cities? Absolutely not. Nope. nope. <laughs> She'd probably wear something flowing but modest and, of course, a headscarf. Um, and in the newer film, uh, I believe in the new film, like, half, she's, like, half Indian and half, like, mm-hmm. Saudi Arabian or something like that. I, again, I didn't see the movie, but I heard that they tried to, like, kind of mix the two, and that's why she does dress a little bit different. They're, they're mixing more of, like, the idea of a sari yeah. into it, so it doesn't seem – because, I mean – when she goes into the town, she is wearing, like, a cloaked, you know, in the cartoon, mm-hmm. she's wearing a hood. She's mm-hmm. kind of cloaked, trying to be more modest. It's, like, wrapped around. Yeah. But then, yes, they are making it mu- look much more like a sorry in the live action. Yeah. Um, which brings us to our next point about representation in Disney films. <laughs> we all know that it has not been the best. I mean, like, 99%, maybe 100% of the kids. Um, characters who are all Middle Eastern were voiced by white people. I think, like, the only person of color was Leia Salonga. Mm-hmm. And I mean, um, Merida was the first Disney princess with an accent, mm-hmm. so. Um, and, of course, there were a lot of stereotypes used in the film that would not be cool today. Um, but we do need to acknowledge that there was a significant step taken when Leia Salonga was cast um, as the singing voice, at least, of Jasmine, because she is at least of Asian descent being Filipino. 
Then in 2019, when Aladdin got a live-action reboot with a much more diverse cast, Aladdin was played by Mina Masood and the genie by Will Smith, and Jasmine was played by British Indian actress Naomi Scott. And it was nice to see like people of South Asian and Middle Eastern descent playing characters that were like supposed to look like them. But the production did get into some trouble for apparently putting makeup on some extras to make their skin darker so they could blend in, which is very uncomfortable. That is uncomfortable. Just make them go white people in the background. Who cares? Right. Like, what? Again, yeah. Hate that. Um, but the most important change when it came to Jasmine was her motivation and overall storyline. Rather than simply wanting a choice in who she married, she also, you know, is making this decision as a political matter. Jasmine doesn't just wish to choose her husband. She wants to be the sultan. And at the end of the movie, she doesn't just get to be with Aladdin. She becomes the sultana of Agrabah. And apparently there's this whole storyline where, like, if Jafar gets to be sultan, he's going to, like, invade her mother's home country. And so she also, like, saves this whole country. I mean, you've seen the movie. Yeah. It's Am a I... very political story. Yeah. Like they, they're, up, they're upping the game to an adult mm-hmm. level. Like, it's not just like, I'm a teenager and I don't want to marry who you tell me to marry. Mm-hmm. They're reminding you that oftentimes royalty were meant to marry somebody as a political match. And yeah. she has to, like, in the face of that, be like, I'm not only not going to do it, but I'm going to rule this country as a woman. Yeah. And that's like a very uncomfortable thing that's happening that she has to break through. Like not only the the people that are following Jafar, but of her own country. Yeah. Who don't want a woman in power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a very political movie in that way. Yeah. And then, of course, she gets her own badass song in the movie about speechless. how she won't be silent <laughs> called Speechless, <laughs> which was a huge hit. Um, so even if the casting was maybe a little off in the first movie, we can't stress how important it was just to have Jasmine exist in 1992 as the first Disney princess of color. And I think it's important to note that she remains to this day the only member of the Disney princess lineup that is not the focus of the film that they were in. That's how impactful she was. She is still routinely at the top of the most lists of Disney princesses, whether it be sexiest, most feminist, or simply the best. And I believe she is still the fourth most profitable Disney princess of all time. So whether you grew up seeing yourself in her or desperately wanting to be her and, you know, trying to wear a cute midriff exposing Jasmine Halloween costume only for your mom to put you in a turtleneck because you lived on the East Coast. (laughs) Too cold. Jasmine was there and she truly started a new era of Disney princesses. And that's the story of Jasmine. Oh, that's so fun. I love that the original story is so close. I know. And that she was a strong character in the original story. Yeah. I didn't expect that. Like, obviously, like, she doesn't have as much say in the original story, but she still makes decisions and does shit. And like, she's getting more and more say mm-hmm. as the movies go on. Like mm-hmm. now that we have this live action version, I think we're understanding the role that Royal women yeah. played. Like something that we didn't get to see before, like the political chess pieces that political yeah. women were. Yeah, exactly. It's so cool. Yeah. So 
That's it. Are you ready to talk about these women together? I'm ready. In a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay. <laughs> Freedom is such an amazing point in both of these stories. Like people being able to choose and live the lives they want to live is mm-hmm. what Ida and Jasmine are both fighting for. Absolutely. And I also think that it's interesting that like they were both uh, being treated as adults at the age of 16 oh, because yeah. Ida had to be a mom and an employee while she was being a student when she was 16, you know, like she's just trying to get her life together. Mm. And they're like, Nope, here are all these kids. Like, and also she had to fight for those kids too. But like, I think that maybe that's why freedom was so important to both of them because then Jasmine's 15 and they're like, you have to get married and be a wife to this, to the next Sultan. And she's like, what the fuck? Like, I am not, ready for this you know like that's so much to put on these young girls so I do think that even though freedom looks different to both of them that was the whole point of the Disney Aladdin story was that like freedom looks different to other people but it's still important for everyone yeah and it brought in both stories bring in like classism in a really interesting way because like for Aladdin it's like his uncle like let me take you and teach you how to be a merchant, like mm-hmm. whilst tricking you. Mm-hmm. And the same was true of Ida's dad. Like, I'm yeah. going to let you learn how to be a carpenter. Mm-hmm. And yet, like, you're going to, like, still be my property and, like, and, like sell you out to people. And then yeah. both James and Aladdin became really influential figures in these women's lives. Yeah. Well, and also, I think there's a running uh, theme of a misconception of other people's abilities. Mm. Because I was thinking a lot about when Ida's writing early on and she's like, why aren't you standing up for yourself? Why aren't you writing articles? Why aren't you doing this? And not understanding that like other people do not have the mobility that she does because Mm. she did get a chance to live in a household and learn how to read and write and learn how to be like a proper Victorian woman. So like she could move around a lot easier And it reminds me of the conversation that Aladdin and Jasmine have when they're up in Aladdin's cool-ass apartment where he's like, oh, God, it must be so great to live in the palace, you know? Mm -hmm. And he's like, you could just do whatever you want. And then Jasmine is saying, like, no, you can't. Like, I think there's a certain ignorance of other people's struggles that we all have. Yeah, every cage is a cage. Every Yeah, exactly. Just because... You know, her cage is different from my own. Doesn't mean that, like, it doesn't exist or whatever that quote is, Mm. you know. And I just think there is this running theme of, like, you're never going to fully understand what the other person is going through. And I don't know if you exactly have to. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's good to know as much as you can. But you're never really going to know what it's like to be in that other person's shoes. But you should still keep fighting for everyone's freedom and you don't have to walk in jasmine's badass shoes Mm -hmm. to like understand that she's under a lot of pressure Mm -hmm. like that's fine yeah and i think that because of that both of these stories have a really interesting interplay with the law yes like you know ida is trying to deal with these laws that keep happening that are putting her farther and farther back after she thought she was in freedom. And I thought that was funny with Jasmine's story where it's like, she thought she had her happily ever after Mm -hmm. and then it was stripped away and they kind of had to earn it back again. And abolishing laws is something that the, the Sultan does in in Jasmine's story. And it's something that the 
you know, the civil rights movement has tried to do in our country for a really long time. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, because in both stories, there's kind of this initial thing of like, well, sorry, it's the law. We can't change it. And it's like, well, but you're changing things to benefit, you know, this racist society that we live in. So you don't mind changing it when it comes to putting more restrictions on our movement. But when it comes to giving people more freedom and more movement, that's when you have a problem changing the law because mm. it's easier to say no than to say yes. You know what I'm saying? Like there's this idea that like you can't change a law when you know that the people that are largely in control are not going to benefit, right? which is very interesting. And also there has to be a working around the kind of laws in order to, for them to get what they want. You know, like I was thinking about how instead of Ida asking the Masons, like, hey, I don't need you to put them in different money, like different homes. I Like she could have just been like, hey, like I just need some money to like, you know, help me out for a little bit. But instead she asked for a job. And it kind of made me think of like how you have to use your wishes very wisely mm. with the genie. Absolutely. And also how like in the original story, like, they didn't ask the genie for money right away. They were asking him for dinner and then they would sell the plates, you know, because I think that that was thinking more long-term mm. because I'm sure that like Aladdin's mom was like, it would be weird if our neighbors saw us just like bursting with jewels. All so of like a sudden. all of a sudden, so let's keep it on the low down and slowly, you know, always kind of thinking ahead and thinking about the optics and what it means for you as a person because people would be suspicious if all of a sudden they're like, here are rubies. And they're like, you didn't have rubies yesterday. You're but silver plates, those are a little oh, more understated. You know, it's like, okay, maybe you got some silver plates. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I think there's a work arounding the laws that's also happening for the disenfranchised people of the story. It's true. And also both of the women have this, they're trying to work around the idea of marriage. Yes, so both of them. Ida mm -hmm. is like, I am, she, they both have tons of suitors, mm -hmm. at least in the Disney version where he, she has Raja ripped his old <laughs> pants and he has on heart boxers, <laughs> which I think is so funny. Um, what a cute touch. But uh, like Ida being like, I have all these boys that like me and there are more specific details about the guys that liked her that I just, I mean, her story is so long. I didn't have time to get into it, mm -hmm. but she had all these people that were into her, and she was like, I am not going to marry one of you just because you think I want to marry one of you. Exactly. And, like, they both respected their own choice mm -hmm. more than the social pressure to get married before they fucking wanted to. They're just two beautiful, outspoken women. That's, I mean, they're very outspoken, and I think they both had tempers. Like, oh, Jasmine has a temper in the film. Oh, yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> she is not okay. And even in the original story, she's like, I'm not going to let that guy sleep with me. Right. You know? So like throughout her whole, every iteration of her story, she is standing up for herself. And I think both of them, like they're not going to stand there silently. Like I mm -hmm. think, you know, I won't be speechless is the perfect iteration for, or the perfect kind of summation of all of the Jasmine's because none of them stayed silent. And mm -hmm. for Ida, because she was like, I'm not just going to stay, you know, speak out. I'm going to put this in writing mm -hmm. because speaking out and standing up for yourself is one thing, but like standing up for other people and like pointing out this bullshit. Again, it's looking to the future and being like, this is going to be important 
a hundred years from now. Yeah. Because then they'll know that this isn't going to be a new thing. It's been happening forever. And running your mouth is so important. Mm-hmm. My my friend on Instagram, Mary Nor this week, put up like a post that said, if I'm ever murdered, feel comfortable that I ran my mouth until the bitter end. <laughs> and I was like, yes. Oh, I my God. Totally. I feel that yeah. so deeply. Like, mm-hmm. I will not fucking shut up, even if you're mad at me. And I yeah. feel like both of these women yeah. really felt that way. Which is so funny, because I do feel like it's very against my nature. Like, I am actually not super outspoken in like my own life I feel like well I just I think that you don't like confrontation I hate it (laughs) and like I thrive on it I'm like oh my god that person's terrible let me tell you and both of these women I mean I always loved the scene where Jasmine stomps into Jafar's lair and she is like (laughs) what did you do you know like Mm -hmm. She's not asking someone else to do it for her. She's not going to her dad and like asking him what happened and like ask, be like, talk to Jafar. She, again, she's trying to solve her own problems. And I think Ida does the same thing because, unlike what some people's opinion is, Jasmine does fight her own battles as yes. much as she can. And Ida was doing the same thing. She goes, if no one else is going to fucking do this, then I am going to step up. And like, yeah. sometimes that she overstepped. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, people like Booker T. Washington were like, we'll give up political rights if you give us this, this, and this. And Ida was like, no, we won't. Right. Who's exactly. we? Yeah. Who's we? Yeah. <laughs> I, I disagree you with that. You don't speak for everyone. <laughs> I disagree with what you're saying, Booker. God. And I also love that they're both princesses. I love that she was called the princess, princess of, of the, the press. press. That's so funny. Yeah, they were both just some loudmouth princesses who had something to say. Had something to fucking say. Yeah. <laughs> All five, four and a half feet of her. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Are you ready to toast these women? I am ready. Who would you like to toast this evening? So this week, I was really inspired by negative vibes. <laughs> like, I love, like, I love people who are positive vibe only, but I also understand that, like, that can be really toxic. And I'm not yeah. a positive vibe only person. Mm-hmm. So I loved the idea that. Ida's negative vibes made a positive difference. Yeah. It made me feel better about like being a bitch all the time. (laughs) I'm so angry all the time. And that doesn't mean I can't affect the world in a positive way. Yeah. So I want to cheers to negative vibes. (laughs) Negative vibes only. (laughs) Cheers. Who do you want to toast? God, I am going to toast Jasmine and I'm going to toast just like, the women who are so cool that the guy has to step up. I am obsessed with the Like, it's actually funny because fiance, Casey, he suggested I do Jasmine this week. Oh, fun. And I was like, oh, I don't know if there's like enough there. And then I started researching it a little bit. And then I heard that fact and I was like, that's like all I need to know. That's so <laughs> fucking cool that they had to redesign the whole character of Aladdin just to be cool enough to date and Jasmine. And the movie's like named after him. Yeah. What a, what a dummy. <laughs> so, yeah. Make other people step up to the plate for you. <laughs> get, your, get your head in the game. Get your, get your, get your. All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So this one's kind of dumb. I, um, I love the, have you seen like mixed tiles on like Instagram or Facebook? I don't know what that is. So Mixed House is just like this cute art salesperson and it's 
it's like a big company, but they just have really cute, unique art. And mm. every time I see a new one, I'm like, huh, it's like an octopus on top of a naked woman's head. And I'm mm. like, that's weird. Or it's like a girl walking down the street out of a circus with balloons, but like she also has the lion from the circus <laughs> with her. It's like very weird stuff that uh-huh. like I am no, like I'm a kitschy person. Like I like like very popular kitschy things, but I also don't want my house to look like that piece of art from Ikea that mm-hmm. everybody has. Yeah. So I just think like it's a really easy way to be like, oh, that's fun. So okay. I don't know. It's just cute art that I've seen over and over again. And now that I've clicked on it, like it keeps coming right. up. So mixed tiles, I think just look into it. There's fun right. things for relatively cheap. It sounds great. What about um, you? I am pretty late to the game. I started listening to Olivia Rodrigo. <laughs> Oh my god! I, literally, I love her. I was like, I was like, everybody keeps talking about her. I was like, I'm gonna give the album a listen. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is a very good album. She's so angry, right? I was like, where was this album when I was in like middle school? This boy should be ashamed. This, I was like, wow, every fucking song is about I know. this. This is amazing. Jake is like, wow, she like upped Taylor Swift's game. Yes, she did. She's like, you wrote a song about your ex boyfriend. I wrote an album every single fucking song i love the song deja vu oh, yeah. I, that's my favorite one mm-hmm. it's so mm-hmm. fucking good all of it's good uh, i love good for you she's so angry she, and screw that and screw you <laughs> like, oh my god i want to yell with you god it's just like I w- another example of negative vibes yeah <laughs> negative vibes all the way in that album i also think that like like i think she was very inspired by like you know, Paramore and Avril Lavigne and, like, all these people that I grew up with, you know. Well, and like, for me, it's very Alanis Morissette where, yes. like, you have an entire – Jagged Little Pill is just oh, such a shit yes. album where you're just, like, an angry woman. And yeah. I really feel those vibes from her. And then I also love that, like, there's that song, Happier, where she's like, okay, fine, you can be happy, but not as happy as you were with me. And it's like, <laughs> yes, that's exactly how I feel about all my ex-boyfriends. <laughs> like, I'm so happily married, but I still don't want them to be happier than they yeah, were with you me. You can't be happy <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Yeah, it's no. It's so petty. I love it. She's so petty. She's so angry. I absolutely adore her music. I, yeah. I agree with you. That's a great promo. Yeah. I she just, deserves it. She deserves it. She really does. I was like, wow, people are really talking this girl up. And I was like, wow, they're right. Yep. <laughs> she's wow, so can't good. believe it. The <laughs> culture is correct. <laughs> Again. Um. All right. Well, like Olivia Rodrigo, you can find us everywhere. <laughs> On Instagram, on, on Twitter, Facebook. on Facebook. Probably not. Olivia Rodriguez probably not on Facebook. She's too no, young and cool. She's too young. She yeah. doesn't even know what it is. No. Um, but find us everywhere. But the best thing you could possibly do for us is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And you then know? if you want a little extra, you can join us on Patreon, where we do Please like a do. five to ten minutes extra every week, and yeah. you can give us ideas and tell us what to do. And we really we just listen to you guys mostly. Yeah, because let me tell you, this whole idea of the alphabet season was inspired by patreon yeah. so get in on it misty it's told a us fun group it is so but most of all we want you to never forget that well-behaved women have an established five-year plan oh, they do. and they really goodbye
You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.